0: Hi there, this is Edwin Crozier of the Franklin Church of Christ. I just want to thank you for joining us as we open God's Word. I've got a very special lesson for you today, and I'm really excited about it. On February 27, 2005, the Franklin Church of Christ invited Brother Jim Deason, an evangelist from Murfreesboro, Tennessee, to come and present a very special lesson to us. Perhaps you've heard about a religious movement that's taking place, not only among churches of Christ, but in the denominational world as well, called the House Church Movement. Brother Deason presented a lesson to us, opening the bread of life and showing what God's Word says about the organization of His church, about worshiping Him, and about following the pattern set forth in His Word and what it says about what's going on in this most recent house church movement. As you listen to this lesson, Brother Deason will reference a handout that he provided the congregation. If you'd like this handout, you can go to our website at www.FranklinChurchOfChrist.com Click on the sermon links, find the sermon entitled The House Church Movement, or you can go to the dates of the sermons and go to February 27, 2005, and find the sermon, The House Church Movement, and you can download that outline and follow along with Brother Deason as he presents his message. Again, I certainly hope this is beneficial to you. Get out your Bible and follow along as we learn from Brother Deason.
1: appreciate so very much your presence. I appreciate so very much the invitation that's been extended to me to come and to talk with you tonight, and I hope and I pray that the things I have to say will be beneficial to you. I really like that song that uh, Jimmy just led. In fact, I love singing with Jimmy Hickman anytime he leaves because he always challenges me. I, I love to sing with good song leaders, and he does just a fantastic job. But that last song, "We are One," is incredible, is it not? Such power, such uh, such a message that it has. For all of us to be one in Jesus Christ, and uh, I am uh, so glad that you are one, and that you are working hard to serve the Lord, and that it's obvious that a lot of growth has taken place in your midst over uh, the last year or so since I was here. I appreciate so much the work of Edwin and Marita uh, while they are among you. They're good folks. I, I knew they were good folks from the time I heard that he was coming, and that he would bless your midst, and I know that he has and. Uh, I just appreciate him and the work he's doing so very, very much. Being handed out to you now is a handout that I'm going to uh, be going by quite a lot tonight. There is basically 11 pages of outline that's there. I do want to tell you that I'm not going to be like the Apostle Paul and preach till midnight. I, well, See, there's always one smartly looking in the crowd. It just always is. So what we're going to do is we're going to be going down the outline, but there's a lot of this that I'm going to be moving over in, in order to be able to get to some to some things that I think are very pertinent to the discussion that we want to have this evening. And, you know, this is not one of those lessons that you can just ride back and rip with because it's an informational lesson. It's telling you some of the things that's going on in the religious world around us. Now, in the very beginning, uh, let me just tell you that as we talk about the house church movement, that I'm not talking about specifically and only about the things that are taking place among us these days. Because uh, that, that while that would be a profitable discussion, I think that it is even more profitable for us to back up a little bit and maybe even get a broader picture about some of the things that are taking place, and then it will help us to understand why the things are happening among us as they are. Of course... For several years now, there's been this phenomenon that's taking place among us. It's called the house church movement. These are not churches that are beginning, churches that are established as we typically think of them, the normal church, if you will, that's established in someone's home. That's not what I'm talking about. In fact, it may very well be that the very first meeting of this church here, wherever it might have been held, might have been in someone's home. I know that many of the churches that I know across the width and the breadth of this land began in someone's basement or in someone's garage or in someone's living room. And so tonight what I'm not talking about are churches as we know them patterned in the New Testament that happen to be meeting in a home. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the house church movement as we will define it as we go through this lesson. A movement that for all of its diversity has a specific agenda and a systematic theology. Now, I want us to notice two things about this movement as we begin. First of all, this movement is very broad in scope. There are a lot of people who are who feel that the churches in which they were raised have become so traditional that they have become bogged down in that tradition. And so, maybe at least born out of some good motive in wanting to feel more closer to God They have broken away from these established churches in order to be able to meet in the community. It's like in their homes, and to have a warmer fellowship with one another. It's likely that in this community here, there's more than one. I know that particularly here, when you think about the house church movement, you may be thinking of one. But I'm here to tell you that there are going to be a lot more than one. Because this movement is something that has taken place in the religious world in general, and it's just beginning to catch up with us. Lagarde Smith, Radical Restoration, and John Mark Hicks' book, Come to the Table, two books which I'm pretty sure that you at least have a passing acquaintance with, have had considerable impact among institutional churches of Christ with regard to this movement. And then among non-institutional churches, uh, such as we are tonight, This movement has been felt in at least seven states, of which I am aware, and it's happened a lot up and down what I call the I-65 corridor. Now, this movement is also, for all of its uh, scope, is is very diverse in its nature. There are some people who in this movement believe that they are seeking to restore the New Testament church. For example, in his book, Ecclesia: The Roots of Biblical Life, which actually is just a collection of articles that Steve Atkerson has put together. Ackerson himself writes, We propose that the apostles had a definite, very particular way they organized churches, and they intended for all churches to follow these same apostolic patterns even today. Now, Atkerson is a member of the Baptist faith, and he was at one time a Southern Baptist preacher. And he left that denomination in order to establish a house church in this house church movement. And so what he believes, and it's ironic to me that here's a man who's come out of that denomination particularly, who believes that what he is doing is actually establishing a church after the Testament order. Now, does that sound familiar? You see, that's what we want to do, is it not? Isn't that what we call ourselves doing? Trying to establish a church after the Testament order? And here is someone in the religious world who is not associated with churches of Christ who's trying to do that very same thing, or at least he's making that attempt to do the very same thing. And I think that's very interesting. There are other people who, on the other hand, look at it quite different. There's a man by the name of Robert Banks. And I have a bibliography at the end of this uh, this, uh, outline that you may want to check out and read if you'd like to. Uh, Robert Banks says in his book, "...it's not the recreation of the first century church that's the goal. The desire is to recapture the spirit and dynamics of early church life in ways that are appropriate to our own culture." So for uh, as, as broad as this uh, movement is, and for as uh, diverse as its, nature is, as its nature may be, they're not, not united in the goals they want to accomplish. While one sees it as a restoration of the ancient order, another sees it as quite something else entirely. Now, it's because of that diverse nature, I want you to pay very special attention to something I've written on the bottom of page one in your outline, uh, point five, or uh, Roman numeral five, it's because of the diverse nature of this movement that I feel the need to issue to those who, who read what I have written or who listen to what I'm saying tonight a word of caution. In the material that is being presented to you tonight and what you read in the privacy of your home in, in this lecture or this sermon, I'm painting with a very broad brush, and I realize the danger of doing that. I'm painting with a very broad brush. In fact, no one in this movement, will accept all of the views that I'm going to present in this lecture as characteristic of the movement as a whole. And so what that means is that you need to use a lot of care not to attribute to anyone a view they do not hold, nor ascribe to them a practice in which they do not participate. I'm concerned that that might happen. From this lecture tonight, I presented this material at the Florida College Lecture just a few weeks ago, And I'm concerned that sometimes we hear about something and we say, this person is a part of the house church movement and what we're going to do is we're going to think that all of these things that I'm going to be talking about tonight is going to be characteristic of what they are doing and that won't be accurate. And it's unfair to do that to anyone, to ascribe to anyone a position they do not hold or a practice in which they do not engage. So please, please be very careful that you not do that. Now on page 3 of the outline that I have presented for you here in, in, this, uh, uh, in, in this outline written outline, Steve Axon presents about 16 different things, and we're not going to go all the way through them, but about 16 different things that he believes are apostolic traditions that should still be binding today. The very first of these is the Lord's Supper eaten as a full meal. You look at verse uh, number four and it's interactive participatory, uh, participatory open church meetings. Number five is mutual edification. Now, those of you who are older, like me, will remember uh, years ago a man by the name of Carl Ketcherside and Leroy Garrett. Mutual edification is a position uh, which they came to later in life, uh, the uh, Work here, some of you who have been a part of churches here for a long time will remember Brother Charles Holt that used to preach in this city many years ago. The Wallace Holt debate that was printed years ago is one of the best, if not the best, written debate on institutionalism that's ever been printed. But Brother Holt, late in his life, left the truth and went into a mutual edification sort of ministry and many other things. In fact, this movement has the characteristics of Charles Holt's latter life stamped all over it. Because a lot of these things that you see in this movement is also similar to the things that Holt taught. Now, when you look at this list of, of 16 different things here on the top of page 3, uh, you're going to read down through this list, and there are going to be some of these practices you're going to find in Scripture, some of them, uh, that you're going to, uh, that some of them that you won't find in Scripture, some that you are going to agree with, and still there are going to be others that you're going to have to have some explanation just to understand, and once you understand them, you're going to realize that they're not found in Scripture either. The concept is not indeed scriptural. So we're not going to be able to go through all of these. I couldn't if I had two or three hours to be able to go through all of these. But I do want to look at seven of them very briefly, and we're going to center pretty much most of our time on one of those. Among churches of Christ, the greatest influence in this movement is Edward Smith. Again, I've mentioned his book Radical Restoration and some of his views. If you compare the 16 things that are listed here with some of the things that Smith has espoused in Radical Restoration, I think it's going to be almost impossible not to see the common threads between the positions held by Smith and the positions held by Ackerson. Now, someone might say, as a part of this movement, it's because they're both following the Bible. And I realize that when two people follow the Bible, they're going to agree. But I don't believe that is the case. I don't believe they're following the Bible at all. I believe what you're going to find is that they uh, do agree on a lot of things, but it's interesting to me that here's a man who's coming out of the denominational world, and here's Smith over here who's coming out of the world of institutional churches, and and some of the things that they are teaching uh, are going to agree right down the line. Now, it it seems to me that one has been an influence on the other, and I'll leave uh, who influenced who just to, uh, because I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. As I mentioned, I want to talk about seven things tonight, real quickly. And then the lesson will be yours. First of all, obviously, when you talk about the house church movement, one of the first things that come to your mind is the fact that they are worshiping in houses. And it's beyond any doubt true that New Testament churches did oftentimes meet in houses. Romans 16, 5, 1 Corinthians 16, 19, and several other passages. And so, as we mentioned in the beginning, we're not talking about churches after New Testament order who mentioned in, uh, who just happened to meet in houses as we talk about the house church movement. Barrister Job of the Chigwell Christian Fellowship, on the top of page 4, he lives in London, England, writes that after dispersion of the uh, from the city of Jerusalem, we are left with the simple fact that whenever churches are located in Scripture, they are always without exceptions in people's homes. Now, it's a statement like that that I challenge. Because you see, he's saying that meeting in homes is the exclusive pattern of the New Testament church. To do anything else according to that statement would not be according to the apostolic pattern. Uh, Smith places great emphasis on what he sees as a pattern by saying, maybe that's where it all went wrong in the first place. Maybe the church should never have left home. Now, the truth of the matter is, when you start looking at the Scriptures, you will see that the early churches did not meet only in houses. But they met also uh, in the temple in Acts 2 and verse 46. They met also by a Riverside in the book of Acts chapter 16 and verse 13 where the Apostle Paul met Lydia. Uh, they met in the school of Tyrannus in the book of Acts chapter 19 and verse 9. And in James chapter 2 and verse 2, they met in a synagogue type of place. Now, some people believe that the word synagogue, yeah, is it's mentioned there, it just simply refers to assembly but you can't get away from the fact that that assembly took place in some location that seemed to belong or seemed to at least uh, be possessed in some way by the brethren, whether it was one that they owned or one that they rented or, or one that they just borrowed to rent in, I, I, or to meet in, I, I don't know. But the point that I'm making is, is that there is no exclusive pattern regarding the place where Christians in the first century met. There's just no exclusive pattern for that at all. Experience determines where they assemble. But that makes us ask a question. Why is there such a strong emphasis placed upon meetings by meeting in houses for those in this movement? And, and let me just back up to say that uh, it, it's interesting that a lot of these churches that begin in houses and call themselves house churches or think of themselves as house churches very quickly move out of houses. And th- there are a lot of reasons why that's so. And, and some of them... Uh, would be noble in that they grow to the point that they can't meet in somebody's houses. But In some of the reading that I've done, it's interesting that they talk about the destruction that takes place in people's houses just by having that many people in there all the time. And so they see that it's not an expedient thing for them to meet in somebody's house that they need to have a common sight in sight uh, uh, that, that would be expedient to meet in, and then by that time you've broken down uh, the first argument that they make that we need to meet in houses. But why is there such a strong emphasis on house churches? And it's not really the meeting in the houses that they're concerned about. The answer lies in the fact that they see the function of any given assembly hindered by large numbers. They believe churches must be small in order to facilitate the informality and the spontaneity which they believe characterize New Testament churches. And so that brings us to the second point that I want to talk about, and that is spontaneous and formal worship. Embarrassed for Job writes that the New Testament believers came together in each other's houses at churches. Their corporate worship and sharing together was completely spontaneous with no one leading from the front. And that all present were, according to him, free to take part without the controlling presence of anyone leading in the proceedings. Robert Banks even suggests a particular seating arrangement that might be better uh, than most. Smith is a little bit less dogmatic when he says the gathered assemblies of the primitive church appear to have been far more participatory than any that we experience, and almost of necessity, therefore, more spontaneous and informal. But now what I want you to do is turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and let's do as we needed to do tonight. Let's do some Bible study. Let's look at what the Word of God has to say. Let's take just a moment to look at this particular point a little bit more in depth. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Now remember that what Job has said is that all present are free to take part without the controlling presence of anyone leading the proceedings. And that even Smith himself has said that the uh, meetings in the New Testament were far more spontaneous and informal. By the way, it's interesting when you read, if any of you have read Lagarde Smith's book, is, is that... He always talks about from appearances. He, he will use words like from appearances and it seems and uh, words like that, indefinite words, and then he'll draw definite conclusions based on that, which is something that uh, it makes it very difficult for me to continue reading his book. But he does that a lot. But now, what I want us to see is, beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26, ask, us the, ask the question, were these assembl- assemblies spontaneous and informal? Uh, was there no structure to what these assemblies did? Could everyone speak, anybody who wanted to, speak in these assemblies? Let's let Paul answer that question. Beginning in verse 26. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. That's going to be a very general principle that he's going to use throughout this passage. Then he continues... If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two, or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Now let's just stop right here and and get the picture. Here's the church of Corinth. I have no idea how many tongue speakers there were in the church of Corinth. But now Paul does lay down a plan for how that particular spiritual gift is to be exercised. And that's two, or at the most, three, he says. And then let there be an interpreter. What if you've got six tongue speakers in Corinth and all of them want to speak? Now, the Apostle Paul has laid down the divine rule. Only three. No more than three. And then that one, each in order, and somebody's got to interpret or else he's got to keep silent. What's he doing? He's providing structure. What would you do if you had six tongue speakers? Well, I assumed that the fair thing to do would be allow three of them speak this week and three of them speak next week. Or three of them speak this assembly, three of them speak next assembly. That's the way it, uh, it was to be carried out. But they could not all speak at one time. Continue with me, if you will. Verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. He says exactly the same thing about the prophets that He said about the tongue-speakers. We can all promise, back up in verse uh, 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 29, let two or three prophets speak. What if you've got six prophets? Again, I have no idea how many prophets there were. But I know there had to be more than three, or it seems that there did, or else there there wouldn't have been any need for the statement. If you only had three, why make the command anyway? And so there surely were more than three tongue speakers. There surely were more than than three men who were prophesying. And so what's he doing? He's laying down a structure for their assemblies. The Corinthian assemblies had become so informal and so spontaneous as to become chaotic. And rather than giving uh, every brother an opportunity to verbally participate, Paul instructed some of these to be silent. And so what he was doing was again... Making all things to be done properly and in an orderly manner, verse 40, which is providing a measure of structure and formality to their worship. And so, this desire for spontaneity, this desire for informality, is not something that is without its borders. It's not something that is without its guidelines. Now, I do want to say something about the church, the worship of the church being interactive. The worship of the church, the worship such as what we have engaged in here already, is interactive. And it's always interactive. The church where I preach has no less than 14 men who participate in the services every Lord's Day. And you add to that the fact that every single Christian is encouraged to blend his or her voice in song and to to participate in the prayer and make that prayer uh, their prayer. You know, when one leads in prayer from the front, what happens? Other people should be praying with them, and there are many times when I add, in fact, every prayer, I will add my thoughts to what is being said publicly, Uh, so that I will be praying with the brother, but I will also be praying my own prayer as well. So I am participating. When we come together on the first day of the week to give of our meetings. we're participating. When we partake of the supper together, as a blessed memorial of Jesus' body and His blood, we participate with one another. And in every sermon that I preach, I encourage people to, as Paul, or as Jesus said in Luke 8 and verse 18, take care how you listen. And so the worship of the church is interactive. While it may not be spontaneous, while there may not be as much informality as some would like, particularly in larger congregations, while there is some structure given, even in scriptures, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it is also interactive. When someone says our worship is not interactive, I beg to differ. But a more interactive worship is not the only goal of the house church movement. The movement seeks to destroy the biblical model of the evangelist in favor of mutual ministry. Now, I'm not going to spend very much time on this. Simply to notice that John Zinn says, we must confess that the pulpit tradition is a huge obstacle that blocks obedience to the one another, participatory dimension of body life found in the New Testament. Uh, After accusing the elders of abdicating their responsibility... Uh, in over, uh, page 211 of his book, Smith says the very concept of worship focused around a pulpit flies in the face of the dynamic, mutually participatory house churches in the apostolic age. Houses don't have pulpits. I beg the difference. The New Testament churches that I have known that began by meeting in houses, every single one of them had a pulpit. Now, we may be accused of bringing our practices to New Testament. And in fact, that's really not the point that they're wanting to make. You see, the point that they're wanting to make has a lot to do with the old position of mutual ministry, and the idea is being that the elders are to instruct the congregation, while the evangelists are actually supposed to teach only the lost. In fact, uh, Smith even makes that uh, even makes that statement uh, later on in, in one particular place that I thought I had quoted here, but I can't see it just immediately. But it is there. Now, having said that, I need to also say that reform really is needed sometimes in the way that we view the work of elders and the work of preachers. Preachers many times are viewed kind of like congregational CEOs or denominational pastors. And that I think probably isn't because we have allowed ourselves to be viewed that way. Elders have allowed themselves to be viewed more as, uh, as a board of director uh, of an organization than shepherds of people's souls so many times. And to whatever degree that, that may be true, that needs to cease. Now, correcting those abuses is not what Smith has in mind. The bottom of page 5 is where that quote is that I was warning. Smith believes that we should convert our own elders into teaching pastors and our pulpit members into pulpitless evangelists. And again, this is that old mutual edification position that says the evangelists are for the lost and the elders are for the church. Now, the truth of the matter is, is that the New Test- in the New Testament church, evangelists like Paul started churches. Evangelists like Apollos came and watered and continued the work of edification. Paul told Timothy to remain on at Ephesus where Paul himself had labored for at least two years. And you can't help but read in First and 2 Timothy that much of Timothy's instruction was for the church. Paul was telling Tim, Timothy and addressing Timothy and telling him things that he was supposed to teach the brethren. You can't help but miss that. And so the, the idea of mutual ministry... Uh, and that evangelists are just for the lost is something that's not taught in the scriptures. The idea that an evangelist can't locate is, is something uh, that these uh, some of these people have promoted as well. And it's uh, again something that in our tradition goes back to men like Carl Ketcherside and, and Leroy Garrett. And that uh, patently is not so because at least Paul stayed in Ephesus for at least two years. Another thing with which I'm deeply concerned in the house church movement is the idea of church organization. Every apostasy, every major apostasy that's taken place among the Lord's church over the years has started with the organization of the church. That's a historical fact, a corruption of the organization of the church. And this is one that's no different. Smith says on page 178 of his book, "...elders in individual houses might also have come together as a group of citywide elders to discuss matters of importance to the entire community of believers." Nothing necessarily precludes Jerusalem's elders from being gathered from among uh, a multiplicity of house churches. Now, the Bible actually teaches the contrary, that elders are over the local church that's appointed them. And that's where their authority begins. That's where their authority ends. They have no authority over other churches, house churches, or otherwise. What would happen is if you followed Smith's reasoning to its conclusion, he would lead us right back to Rome. And that's something for which we really need to guard against. Something that, uh, in, in the last 50 years, has taken, has created division among churches of Christ. That's why you've got uh, churches as Fourth Avenue here and, and the Franklin Church here. We're separated, uh, due in part, in, in large measure to a corruption in the organization of the church that they perpetrated. And Smith is fallen right along uh, with that uh, same line of thinking and would perhaps even go much further than some of our institutional brethren. The church treasury is, is another issue that comes up in the house church movement. Uh, Lagarde Smith uh, challenges the use of First Corinthians 16, 1 and 2 for uh, a church treasury. But I, I would just simply say that he's, he says that giving is just purely a need-based thing. And my response to that basically is this. So what if it is a need-based thing? I never have known of a church anywhere that didn't have some financial need, some need to either teach the gospel, to edify its own members, or to do some benevolent work. And that in itself is authority for a church treasury, which you have specifically in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. But I hasten to go on because I want to talk about the Lord's Supper now, the Lord's Supper is, is, has become a, a real big issue among our brethren. And let me just say this in the very beginning when it comes to the Lord's Supper, and that, that's that I believe sometimes that we rush through the Lord's Supper like we're running a race. And, and I think sometimes we do that with worship in general, and I think to whatever degree that may be true, it needs to stop. I believe that we need to take our time with the Lord's Supper. It doesn't mean that we have to uh, just get up and just run through it and see how fast we can get it done. In, in some cases, even to the point of timing it in order to be able to, uh, to try to see how fast we can get that accomplished. I, I think that's the wrong approach. And I think we do need to give people time to think about and to meditate upon the, the uh, emblems and the memorial that it was designed to be. But having said that, I want us to look at some things. I want us to take the time to read this statement that's made by Steve Atkerson on the bottom of page 7. The meal is potluck, or as we like to say, pot providence. Everyone brings something to share with everyone else. When the weather is nice, all the food is placed on a long folding table out in the carport. A smaller card table at one end of the long table contains drinks, cups, forks, napkins, etc., a chest full of ice sits on the floor beside the card table. Kids run wildly around, having so much fun that they must be collared by their parents and forced to eat something. After a prayer thanksgiving is offered, people line up, talking and laughing to serve their plates. In the middle of all the food sits a single loaf of bread next to a large plastic jug containing the fruit of the vine. Each believer partakes of the bread and juice while going through the serving line. The smaller kids are encouraged to occupy one of the few places at a table to eat. They sure can be messy. Chairs for adults, they're not enough for everyone, are clustered in circles, mainly occupied by the women folk who eat while discussing homeschooling, child training, souling, and upcoming church socials, the new church we hope to start, etc. Most of the men stand to eat, balancing their plates on top of their cups, grouped into small clusters and solving the world's problems or pondering some hot topic of theology. The atmosphere is not unlike that of a wedding banquet. It is a great time of fellowship, encouragement, and edification, friendship. Caring, catching up, getting to know, praying with, exhorting and maturing. The reason for the event, in case you didn't recognize it, this is the Lord's Supper, New Testament style. When you read that, if you're like me, you just, whoa. I never thought I would read anything like that. And keep in mind that this is a man whose idea is to restore New Testament churches. Now, that's his goal. And he believes that this is the Lord's Supper New Testament style. Legard Smith, in his book, said the most universally overlooked feature of the Lord's Supper as practiced in the primitive church is that from all appearances, it was observed in conjunction with a fellowship meal. I don't know where he got that appearance because I can't read that in my Bible. It's not there. He argues that just because the Lord's Supper was instituted during the Passover meal, which he calls a normal, ordinary meal, therefore it should be observed in the same manner today. Well, I have three major responses to that. I'm not going to take the time to go into them exhaustively, but just simply to say this. First, it needs to be remembered that the Passover meal was anything but an ordinary meal. It was indeed very strictly regulated with regard to what they could eat, the specific items they could eat, and if, if Smith can change the items of the Passover meal to biscuits and greens and, bacons and bacon and beans, uh, which is what he would do, then uh, why couldn't he change the unleavened bread and fruit of the vine for coat and hamburger? Uh, you see, that gets him into all kinds of problems, at least logically in my mind. Secondly, Jesus... Only instituted the Lord's Supper on that Passover evening. He did not observe it. You can't observe a meal that, uh, 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 observe an event as a memorial that has not yet taken place. And then also, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth when he wrote to them. He, they appear to have been practicing the very thing that Axon Smith advocate, that is, eating the Lord's Supper in conjunction with a common meal. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that they should stop it. He says, what do you not have? Houses in which to eat and drink do you, distort, or do you despise the church of God? Verse 22. And first Corinthians 11, verse 34, he says, If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. And so he stops, rights to stop the very thing that Smith and Actresson say that is indeed a part of the Lord's Supper, New Testament style. Recently, and this is where I want to spend most of my time, there's been a new wrinkle that is involved in the the practice of the Lord's Supper that surfaced among uh, some churches. And that is where they come together to partake of the Lord's Supper and then they gather around several different tables and separate into sub-assemblies where they partake of the Lord's Supper there. There is thanks that's offered for the bread for loaves and then there's thanks that's offered for the fruit of the vine served in large quantities. And at that point, around the various tables, the participants, including women, now I know this to be so because I talk to people who are doing it. Now I'm not just getting up here and surmising something; this is what they are doing. And so, what they do is they get around, and the participants, including women, discuss what the Lord means to them, and then, maybe at the conclusion, a man from each table will address the whole assembly to relate what has been said around his particular table. My difficulties with that are a lot. I do want to say something before I get to them, however. We have to be very careful in the study of the scripture. That two thousand years removed away from the first century when the Lord's Supper was instituted and it was practiced under the oversight of the apostles. Now, with regard to the Lord's Supper or absolutely anything else, that we do not read into the Scriptures our practice. That's a danger that we have to be very careful that we not do that's called proof texting. You've heard preachers talk about that when want to talk about Bible authority. And if you go to proof texting everything that you want to do, you can find authority for just about anything that you can imagine. Well, when you want to go to the Bible to find proof for what you want to believe, you're going to find a passage that will give you some kind of semblance of what you want to do, and then you can do it. For example, you know, our denominational friends will talk about salvation by faith. And what they'll do is they'll turn to John 3.16 just as sure as the world to talk about uh, salvation and faith and I believe every passage that mentions salvation and faith. But you see, when you stop there and don't consider everything that the Bible has to say about salvation, what you're doing is proof texting. You're not going to the Bible to get out of it what's there, everything that's said on the subject of salvation. You're going to read into it Going to the Bible to read into it what you want to see there and what you want to find there and only taking a part of its words and sometimes taking that out of context and twisting it. We've got to be very careful that we don't do the same thing. We've got to be very careful that we don't do the same thing and read into the New Testament our practice. It's a difference between exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis means to draw out, and that's what we need to do as we exegete passages for our practice. We do not need to exegete a passage. In other words, read into the passage what we are practicing. Having said that, this new wrinkle, this new practice with the Lord's Supper, I have problems with it from five different standpoints. First of all, the dividing up of the assembly into sub-assemblies in which to partake of the Lord's Supper is completely without scriptural precedent. There is no scriptural precedent for that. In fact, five or six times, depending upon how you want to account for them in the Greek text of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, five or six times it is emphasized that the Lord's Supper is to be taken in the assembly. That's where the Lord's Supper is to be taken in the assembly. If you can divide the church up into sub-assemblies to protect the Lord's Supper, then what would prevent this from being done in separate homes? What would prevent us from just separating here tonight and going to our different homes and protecting the Lord's Supper? In fact, there's at least one church that I know that's done that very thing. But from whence do they get their authority to do that? You don't find it in the Word of God. Now, the second problem I have with this is is the role of women in such arrangements. Women are clearly forbidden to speak in the assembly. First Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34 and 35 says, The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to subject themselves just as the law also says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. And when you look at the context of that passage, yes, it is absolute silence. That word speak there it means absolute silence but in its context is talking about that absolute silence in the sense of addressing the assembly. A woman is absolutely forbidden to address this assembly publicly, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 34 and 35, when the whole church has come together. Now, if it is argued that the assembly is not divided in this practice that some are engaging in, then the scriptures teach that a woman cannot address the assembly and thus they are in trouble. They're doing something the Scriptures do not allow. But if you turn around and they try to argue that the assembly is divided, then where is the authority to take the Lord's Supper in such a divided arrangement? It's just not there. And so either way you go, you have a scriptural problem with what they're doing. Then also, I believe that this practice needs to be looked at in light of Luke twenty-two nineteen through 20 I believe that the scripture indicates an order in the Lord's supper. The bread was taken, then the fruit of the vine was taken after they had eaten, and the word "after" the Greek word "meta" indicates that one part of the supper was concluded before the next began. There's no indication of commingling of the elements, and and this separation was also set apart by a prayer. If you would look at that very carefully, there's. Prayer that was offered, thanks was offered for the bread. It was eaten. Then thanks was offered for the fruit of the vine. And so there was a separation made even by the prayer that was offered. The idea of just sitting around in a meal environment gives me a problem. Because you see, that's the very thing that the Lord told Corinth not to do. See, that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to turn... The Lord suffered into a meal environment, and God said, don't do it. If you're going to eat a common meal, go home and eat it there. And then there's another thing, and I'm going to say that this may fall in the realm of judgment and opinion, but if they've got theirs, I've got a right, and I have a right to theirs, I've got a right to have mine too. Opinions sometimes are like toes. We've all got ten of them, and some of them stink. But, uh, having said that, I'm going to offer my opinion on this matter. In fact, it, to me, it's, it's a little bit more deeply held. But that's this, and that is the practice, this practice creates an environment where people are the focus more than God. Now, I know that they're going to holler when you say that, but bear with me just a minute as I explain about this. I, I know young people who have thought that what they need to do in order to be able to make their prayers a little bit more intimate or maybe a song that they're going to sing a little bit more spiritually uplifting, they may take and light a candle and turn out the lights. Trying to create an environment, an emotional environment. Somehow or another, when you create that environment, that it means it's more spiritual. Well, I'm telling you, when we do that, we take our focus off God who is to be the center and circumference of what we are doing. And we place our own thinking and our own emotions on a par with God. And that is dangerous. Anytime you have to use a gimmick to create an artificial environment, to produce an emotion, you're the center of what's going on and not God. And when you do that, brother, you are in trouble. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. I want to try to nail this point home. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 32, if you will. In Deuteronomy 32, God is telling Moses to ascend the mountain and there die. Verse 50, He says, "...then die on the mountain where you ascend and be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor as, and was gathered to his people." Because you broke faith with me in the midst of the sons of Israel at the waters of Mirabakadish in the wilderness of sin, because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. Do you remember the story? The children of Israel complained complaining for lack of water. God told Moses, take his rod, go speak to the rock. Moses took the rod, but he went and he struck the rock. And then he said, here now, you rebels, Must we fetch water forth from, must we fetch forth water from you from this rock? And God at that very moment told Moses that he would not be able to go into the land of Canaan because he did not sanctify him in the uh, the congregation of the people of Israel. Moses took too much on himself. Moses let the people look at him instead of pointing me to God. And God said, I'm going to be treated as holy. I want you to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 10 you remember the story of Nadab and Abihu? In Leviticus 10, the Bible tells us about their offering strange fire. Fire came from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. I want you to notice verse 3. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. I'm sure there were people... Then, as there have been today, who've looked at this situation and said, fire's fire. It doesn't seem to have been a big deal that they would have gotten their fire from another source and offered their incense with another fire. But God killed them. How do you explain that? I explain it like this. Here's what God said. God had given them instruction and they had disobeyed. And here's what God said. By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And I believe that there was just a little bit of edge on those words. When he said, and before all the people, I will be honored. Worship is not about me, it's about Him. And we need to remember that. There are benefits to our worship that we receive from one another but it is a byproduct of Him being the focus and not the purpose. Well, just quickly, and the lesson will be yours, let's talk about gender roles for a moment. I've heard this statement all my life and have it included in this outline. I want to say it just so you can read it. I'm not a proper son of one. Uh, I'm not even a farmer like Amos was. I tried it one time and failed miserably. And I'm not, and I have especially learned over the last four years that I am absolutely worthless at trying to predict the future. Tomorrow, much less six months or a year or five years from now. I'm just absolutely worthless at that. I'm living more one day at a time these days than I ever have been. But I believe that we're facing a problem with the role of women in church. And that problem is coming down the track like a roaring freight train. Now, I understand that that's the problem. You know, sometimes you know we think we see a coming freight train sometimes and uh, see the light coming and it turns out to be nothing but a boy with a flashlight. But I'll tell you, I really believe that we're headed for major problems with regard to the role of women in church. In the book Ecclesia, Action really takes the stand for truth on this particular question. And he says, women are to remain silent with respect to speaking in the meeting. But John Zinn says the silence position militates, uh, militates against the very thing that we're all for, open meetings with mutual participation. To, get, to suggest that sisters cannot offer spoken prayers directed to the Lord by but heard by the whole church is an extreme and unwarranted restriction. That's his words. Del Berkey in his book goes far beyond that. And he argues from Galatians 3.28, the doctrine of Galatarianism, and you need to read his statements. And maybe even buy the book and read it if you're interested and go that far. John Mark Hicks in uh, his book says the exclusion of women from serving the table is rooted in an inappropriate formalism that turns the assembly to the saints of the saints into an institutional hierarchy rather than a domestic table. And so institutional churches are already having problems with this particular issue in women serving at the Lord's table, which I believe is patently in Scripture. In some of the house churches that I know of established from non-institutional roots Women are already addressing the assembly. I have a tape uh, that I have listened to that, uh, where that is taking place. Women woman is testifying for the assembly. There are women who are openly conversing during the partaking of the Lord's Supper. That admittedly. And then there are women who are participating in leading chain prayers in the presence of men. Brother, it's later than we think. And don't you ever think that you're never going to be faced with something like that here at the Franklin Church. And the only way to be prepared for it is to be taught on the subject and realize what the Scripture teaches. And the Bible plainly says, The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak. It is improper for women to speak in the church. Paul said, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. I'm not anti because of women because I say that. And I hope that none of you good sisters will get upset at me for saying it, but it's the truth. And so we need to be on our guard. I tell you, the women's movement has really affected the Lord's church a whole lot more than what we think. And if we're not careful, we're going to be swept away in a tide of apostasy with regard to gender roles. And so I just simply urge you to be very, very, very careful. Thank you so much for listening to me this evening. I realize that this is a little bit longer than what you normally uh, have, and I've even gone over time. I was afraid that I might do that, but trust me, we could have stayed here a lot longer. You can tell. But these things have been on my heart for two or three years now, very strongly, and... And I think they need to be addressed and we we need to address them in our assemblies and be taught as to regard to what is going on. There may be someone here this evening that is not a member of the body of Christ. I hope that you have been impressed with at least one thing. And that is with every fiber of our being, what we are trying to do is follow the New Testament pattern and let God's Word be our rule in everything. That's what we want to do more than anything else. We want to follow the pattern that God has laid down. We don't want to add to. We don't want to take from. And we hope that that will become your desire. It may be that there's someone here tonight that's already studied and has an attraction for that kind of thing and you believe that that's the approach that you should take according to the Scripture. You believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and maybe you are ready to obey the Gospel by repenting of your sins and confessing Jesus to be God's Son, being buried with Him in baptism for the remission of your sins. There's no better time than now to make that decision.
0: I certainly hope Brother Deacon's lesson was beneficial to you as you strive to learn about God's will for His church, about His pattern for His people. If you have any questions about the house church movement, about the Franklin Church of Christ, I encourage you, please give us a call at 615-794-2359 or you can contact us through our website at www.franklinchurchofchrist.com If somebody has given you this lesson, I invite you to check out our website. You can find numerous lessons on numerous topics that you are free to download. You can get the audio version and the outline version. Use them to God's glory as you see fit. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. But more importantly, may you richly bless God.